challenges, your wit, tactical thinking, and mental capabilities. Mental. Not to mention your psychological well-being. <laughs> who, who knew so much was at stake? I'm, I'm Rob Sterling. Suddenly coming in. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we turn positives into negatives with Voltage. Next, we take care of our own while sending our enemies to sleep with the fishes in The Godfather, Corleone's Empire. And lastly, we barricade our rivals as we race to the border in Twix. I'm your host, Celeste Angelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. I'm Evan Bernstein. Please accept this podcast as a gift on the day of my daughter's wedding. I'm Joe Unfried. Good health is the most important thing. More than success, more than money, more than power. I'm Ed Povolidis. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. I'm Mike Grenier. You talk about vengeance? Is vengeance going to bring back your son to you? Or my boy to me? (laughs) Our first game up this week is Voltage, designed by Brian Yu, published by Mattel in 2006. Number of players, two, ages 10 and up, runtime, 30 minutes. Okay, when we shined a light on this find, what were our first impressions? Mike? The color contrast looked shocking. I'm really amped to try this. Evan? What is this game all about? Ed? I wonder if this will live up to its high-energy name. Joe? One look at this game and my resistance was blown. Oh boy, I can't wait to zap my opponent. But before we start flipping switches, Evan, tell us how it's played. All right, so note to game designers, when you call your game Voltage or something like it, expect the puns, okay? I mean, you just just have to expect that those are going to be flying around, okay? However, Voltage, it's a strategy card game that comes with a small board and a deck of cards. On the board are four different colored places representing electronic circuit terminals. They are red, green, blue, and purple terminals, which can be switched from negative to positive currents throughout the game. Players draw cards with numbers or special actions on them. Each turn, they place colored number cards on their side of the board next to a matching colored terminal. Once any terminal has five cards next to it, the numbers are tallied. If the terminal is set to negative, the player with the lowest amount wins the tally. If the terminal is set to a positive current, the player with the highest tally wins. During the game, there are special cards that can help you do things like flip currents from positive to negative or blow a fuse to maximize your chance of winning a terminal's tally. The first player to win four tallies wins the game. (laughs) Zap. So I think we can all agree on the panel that Here at Which Game First, we're always a little skeptical of the big game companies producing quality games. But the designer of this game, Brian Yu, is a heavy hitter in strategy division. He has won the Kinderspiel de Jahres, and I think in this case, he made a quality game. What did you guys think of the components? The board itself had a kind of a black on black look where there was like shiny little circuit board stuff. And on top of that was just some really stark, like electric colors, for lack of a better word. Remind me of a rave. I thought that the graphic design of the board and the cards looked really cool. They looked like uh, circuit boards on a computer. So the colors had a shiny metallic finish, and the board had a reflective layout. So I thought it did a great job simulating energy without actually needing any electronic components. 
They, yeah, the symbol of the game actually is partially made out of a lightning bolt, and they put it in the back of some of the cards as like a bright yellow to denote that you're switching the polarity of one of the columns. Yeah, so it's very rare to see a deck of cards where the backs of the cards are different. So I, I don't think I've ever played a game with that mechanic before, and I was really excited to try it. So there are two different kinds of card backs. One where the lightning bolt is off and one where the lightning bolt is on, meaning filled in with a bright yellow. The ones where the lightning bolt are on, you actually switch the polarity of the currents, meaning you turn one of the squares from negative to positive, therefore changing the winner from the highest tallies to the lowest tallies and vice versa. If you recall, you actually did play one game that had uh, different backs on it before. That was we didn't play test this at all. This game was really simple in its layout, but there was, I felt, enough strategy in it. There's numbered cards from one to three, but the special cards were a lot of fun. Bypass and Blown Circuit, where you could cancel other cards out. I enjoyed that a lot, and it wasn't too many different things to stop the game from rolling smoothly. This game moved very fast, I thought. Now, the game did move pretty fast, um, although there's definitely a bit of luck involved. I find myself a couple times with cards in my hand I couldn't play without losing. Yeah, I felt trapped a couple times, too. I had I ran into the same situation that Ed did, where I had all of one color cards in my hand, and if I played that card, I would automatically lose the hand to the other player. So, But there's a nice mechanic in which you have options for your play. You can either draw two cards, you can play one card and draw one card, or you can play two cards. So I think there's enough options there to get you out of just about any kind of trap your hand might force you into. Okay, I'm going to play one, draw one. Play one. Oh, flippity flip-flop. Oh, no, another flippity flip-flop. <laughs> Who shuffled these cards? Right? As long as you're careful not to fill your hand all the way up, because that will cut one of your options off, you won't be able to draw two. And sometimes you're trying to switch the polarity on one of those because you're losing, and I'd want to flip it to the negative side to try to win. So the only way to do that is by drawing those cards with the symbol on the back. And that requires luck. Play two. Okay. Play, play. That's five. That's five. So that means... I win. Oh, crumbs. (laughs) (laughs) It screwed that up. The Transformer cards really call your attention. Uh, as soon as they come up, all my neurons went into overdrive about where am I going to put it? What am I going to do? You know, and, and there's real <laughs> tension there that I haven't felt in some much more you know, complicated games than, than this one. I didn't think that this little simple looking card game could pull that off. Yeah, this game had everything it needed and nothing extra. Yeah. I have a tendency to bash big game companies, but we have to remember that a lot of times they were started by indie designers too. And in this case, Mattel was actually started by a couple of guys working in their garage, Harold Matson and Elliot Handler making little dollhouse pieces out of picture frame scraps because they were, they were actually picture frame makers. So, you know, they started there and then uh, they were a toy company. And I think one of my favorite products that they sort of became famous for before Barbie was uh, the fully automatic cap gun. So this thing thing sounded and looked like a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) Did it have a round drum on it like a Tommy gun? No, it had a cartridge. It had a cartridge. You actually popped a cartridge in. And they had an ad, an old ad on the Mickey Mouse show, where this eight-year-old boy is pretending to hunt 
elephant in Africa, right? And you see him shooting an old movie of elephants, and it's like with a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that would not fly today. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, you know, that was, of course, before Ruth Handler, Elliot's uh, wife, came up with the idea for the Barbie doll, and then it was game over for them. But this <laughs> this game this game has a bit of a toy feel too because the components look great, but they do look toy ish. The little squares are look like little toys. That's one of the nice things about having a big game company make a game is that they can make cool looking components like that, little plastic pieces and stuff. For an indie designer, it's much harder. Okay, explorers, get your flashlights out. It's time to dig up or bury voltage. Ed? It's a fast two-player game with interesting choices and a little bit of luck, so dig it up. Joe? This little two-player game is like a little roller coaster with lots of little lights and a little tunnel. Digging it up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Evan? Easy to learn, easy to play, with enough replayability to keep things current. Dig it up. Mike? I wouldn't usually use this word, but I have to say this game is lit. Dig it up. A bright, cheerful-looking game with some unique features and just enough strategy to keep it interesting. Dig it up. This game was widely mass-produced, so you do have a good shot of finding it like I did at the local thrift store, or you can get it online for $10 to $20. If you have thoughts about Voltage, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, designed by Eric M. Lang, published by Kaman Limited and Spaghetti Western Games in 2017. Number of players 2 to 5, ages 14 and up, runtime 60 to 90 minutes. All right, when we dredged up this find, what were our first thoughts? Mike? A game themed after a popular film. Ugh, this is going to be a train wreck. Evan? Luca, the size of that box. I'm afraid of this game is a brand of its own. Joe? Back in the old days, we didn't use computers to hide money in Bermuda and Switzerland and the Cayman Islands. We had suitcases. Ed? A lawyer with a suitcase can steal more money than a man with a gun. Yep, every player gets their own briefcase to put their ill-gotten gains into. Beautiful. But before anyone sleeps with the fishes, Evan... Tell us a little bit about how it's played. The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, a streamlined, confrontational worker placement game filled with murder and intrigue. You play as competing mafia families who are vying for economic control of the organized crime networks of New York City, deploying your thugs and family members on the board to shake down businesses and engage in area-controlled turf wars. Money, rackets, contracts, and special advantages are represented by cards in your hand. Your hand size is limited, and extra cards are discarded to pay tribute to the Don at the end of each of the five rounds. At the end of the game, though, cash is all that matters, and whoever has the most money stashed away in their suitcase wins. My girlfriend got this game for $8 in the Marshall's shoe store. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Even if this game was terrible, I told her to get it because the components alone were worth way more than eight bucks. The box alone, just the box is probably worth eight bucks. The moral of the story here is you can buy games anywhere, I suppose. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The components of this game are impressive. Kaman is known for its minis games. They started as a miniatures-making company, didn't they? Yeah, they actually started as a website, Cool Mini, and, not, and they, they make um, great games, but really awesome minis. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, this game is no exception because each of the different players have family members and thugs, but each family looks distinct. My family member miniatures look different than your family member miniatures, and they match the art that's in the rulebook. Yeah, they did not skimp on art. That is the best art I've ever seen inside a rulebook. The rulebook looks big and intimidating when you first look at it, but it's because of all that awesome art they have in there. Yeah, the illustrations are very well drawn and are based on a movie as well. Uh, I'm not sure if all those characters are from the movie, yeah. Obviously, the Don Corleone is modeled after the movie Don Corleone. But some of the other ones, I'm pretty sure the mayor is Kelsey Grammer's mayor. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, I'd be surprised if they didn't do that on purpose because it looks just like him. But speaking of the mayor, the faces on the ally cards that you get, if you get the mayor or the police chief or someone like that on your payroll, the faces on those cards really blaze with character. The mayor looks meaner than most of the thugs. And the police chief looks absolutely heartless. So the main artist of this game's name is right on the box cover at the same height and credit level as the designer. And I think it's well earned. Carl Kapinski is the artist. And I strongly recommend you guys check him out online. He has some very impressive art. And his portrait paintings are amazing. He has a stunning self-portrait online uh, that belongs in any museum. Cool Mini or Not definitely uses the best artists in the industry. And if anything was going to get me to play a game based on mobsters (laughs) of this era, (laughs) it would be this level of art. The suitcases, and they are suitcases, they're not briefcases. They're the kinds of, you know, suitcases (laughs) you would take, you know, on on a tramp steamer, on a transatlantic journey. The suitcases are perfectly sized for hiding stuff from prying eyes, the eyes of the other people at the table with you while you're playing the game. The plastic figurines, the thugs, and the family members, and the other allies have a lot of nice individual touches. I really like the guy I had with the, with the, with the meat cleaver. And the horse's head was a really nice touch to have. That, that serves to mark which player goes first during the next round. A horse head? Wow. Right. I nice. mean, a horse head is something. Yeah. yeah. Horse head has value. Yeah, I thought that was heavy-handed, putting a horse head in there and everything. <laughs> and why would you go first when you have the horse head? Yeah, the tin suitcases had a great function. Can Not only can you hide your money in there, but you can also hide what you're doing with your bid there. Yeah, every act of the game, you have a phase where you're going to bribe to try to get one of those public official type people. And uh, you put your bribe inside the lid of the suitcase. And when everybody's all set, you flip it open so everybody sees that you have money in the top of your suitcase for the bribe. It's pretty cool. And you're basically bidding victory point there. Right. Your money is your victory point. So you have to be careful how much you bid. But it's not just money to victory point, but it's money that's in your suitcase is victory point. Money in your hand is not necessarily victory point. That's one of the key to the game is actually trying to get the money from your hand into your suitcase so you can run away with it. Right. You have to put your family members or your thugs on the board to do certain actions to get money into the suitcase or you'll end up discarding it and just giving it as tribute to the Don at the end of the turn. Although I didn't give any tribute throughout the entire game and I got away with it somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You also were in third place out of three people. So, Well, well, that's right. Maybe I just didn't take enough risks. 
Maybe. <laughs> oh, man, there was a lot of bodies in the Hudson River each round. I mean, you could walk across the Hudson River. <laughs> yeah, on their backs. <laughs> so, yeah, when a character, uh, there's a lot of ways to take somebody out of a spot on the board. And it's essential to do that sometimes because there's very limited resources on the board that you're trying to get to do the jobs that are put out there. So mm-hmm. if Joe is in the only spot where you can get booze, you might have to use one of your allies to take him out so you can put your own character in that spot and get the booze yourself. Um, the currency in this game was booze, blood money, guns, and drugs, which were a wild card. Yeah, the drug spot was very popular for Shakedown later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a card called Shakedown, and it let you put money into your suitcase and get some drugs. And uh, it was very popular. So one thing that was interesting is that not only is this a worker placement game, there's also an area control element to this. So when the bodies were ending up in the river to feed the fishes, it really changed the layout of the board. Put your control marker down there, number one. Somebody finally took control of Wall Street. I didn't even see that over there. Should yeah, the car, hey, it's right near the river. You can't see it next to all the bodies. It's a really strong strategic decision to take somebody off the board for that reason as well, Ed, because uh, at the end of the game, you see who has had more control over the areas and you get bonus points for that. This is the first time I've ever played a game that has a strong hand management component where I often ended up having too many cards in my hand and had to try to shed some. And there's no actual automatic mechanic where you draw a card off the top of a deck you actually have to go to a spot on the board or do a job that lets you get extra cards into your hand yeah you have to earn all the cards that you get so what did you guys think of the length of the game i think we played it slower than we could have um it went on a little long for us but i can see that once you get the mechanic of the game it can go pretty quick and the turns don't feel like you're waiting forever for your turn But they are definitely like individual turns. There's nothing to do on somebody else's turn. Yeah, I mean, you're calculating your next move, though. There's a lot to think about in between. And honestly, your turn is just one single action, which is place a family member on the board and collect some stuff or do a job by spending resources out of your hand. So you do one of those two things and then it's the next player's turn already. And I think you still be moderately engaged during your other player's turn because you're interested in what they're doing. Right. You're like, oh, no, they took that spot. I wanted that spot. <laughs> yeah. Now, instead of going there, I have to bring out my hired gun to take him out of that spot so I can get in there next round. Is that what you guys did with the drug den every time? Just kill the guy that, kill the guy that was in there and shake him down separately? We just shook it down. There was a uh, job that you can do if you have the right component to uh, shake down any spot, whether it's occupied or not. Right. But we also did kill that guy a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of dudes that <laughs> occupied that spot that ended up in the Hudson River. Which is one of the reasons why the Godfather didn't really want to get into drugs in the first place. He knew it was trouble. <laughs> it's true. He did. Dirty business, he called it. Um, so a little bit of a history about the movie that I thought was interesting. And I thought we'd find this interesting because we're all role players. So when Coppola was directing the film, he had all the actors get together for family meal. And they would sit there in character for the entire time <laughs> eating the dinner to see how their characters would like shape out if they interacted. Because method acting was all the rage back in Coppola's heyday. (laughs) I'm sure all the actors were totally into it. Well, I think any actor who gets a chance to act for a longer period of time likes it. Oh, you mean I get to stay in character for three extra hours? I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, explorers. It's time to dig up or bury the godfather Corleone's empire. Joe? I'm digging this game up because at its heart... This game manages to capture the fatalism and the romanticism of Mario Puzo's epic Sega while still functioning as a relentlessly solid worker placement game. Evan? 
Unfortunately, I wasn't able to play, but it sure sounds a lot of fun. Get it? Salazzo character. Wow. The, never wow. mind. Ed? The game was better than I expected. It's a decent worker placement game with a little bit of area control element that seems pretty wild. I'll dig this up and hide it in the suitcase. Mike? A lot of times with these games that represent popular films or shows, they're awful and the mechanics are just an afterthought. But I was pleasantly surprised by this one. It had great mechanics and it was a fun game. Dig it up. Sadly, I didn't get a chance to play, so I will reserve my judgment, but it does sound like you guys had a lot of fun. Mike, where can you find it? Well, if you're super lucky, you can get it at Marshall's Shoe Store for $8. <laughs> but it's also available online for as high as 65 bucks, which I think is still fair. If you have thoughts about The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is Twixt, designed by Alex Randolph, produced by the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, better known as 3M, in 1962. Number of players two or four, ages 12 and up, runtime 30 minutes. Okay, when we brush the sands away from this find, what were our first thoughts? Mike? 3M made a board game? Let's see if it's worth sticking around for. <laughs> Evan? The board looks like a battleship board. What what could this possibly be? Ed? <laughs> it has a really cool box. It looked like it could be put on a shelf. Joe? I remember this 1962 game as one of the classic bookshelf board games that I was not allowed to touch, let alone play, slotted right between Feudal and Panzerblitz. I think Joe means Twixt, Feudal, and Panzerblitz. But before we <laughs> slot this game anywhere... Evan, tell us how it's played. Twixt is a strategy game for two or four players in which the goal is to create a linked series of pegs across a pegboard stretching 24 spaces in length from your side of the board to the opposite side of the board. The strategy lies largely in trying to block your opponent from reaching the same goal by using your chain of pegs to hinder your opponent's progress. The rules are very simple, but the strategy you're going to need to win is anything but... So it's not a delicious candy bar. It's an actual game. No, no. This is spelled T-W-I-X-T. Uh -huh. Twixt. <laughs> there, there's the catch. In an era of rich mahogany bookshelves and many leather-bound books, this game could disguise itself nicely. <laughs> it may predate a time where people had a specific shelves just for games. Funny you should mention that because this is actually part of 3M's bookshelf series of games. A whole series. <laughs> it is a whole That's series, awesome. 28 games they made in this bookshelf style, which is what Joe was talking about in his intro. Feudal and Panzerblitz were two other games in this series. Um, they, oh, they, yeah. were, they had this series going from 1962 to 1974, and then it was bought by Avalon Hill, and they, they kept on going with the bookshelf series after that. They have that nice imitation leather feel to them. and Yeah, they're textured and everything. That's great. I know we've reviewed a lot of games, but I don't think we've ever had a game that actually reflects the styles and the uh, thoughts of a given historical period as this game does with the 1960s. The title's font looks like Hanna-Barbera. It's almost Flintstonian. <laughs> yeah. The close-up of the standing pins 
look like props from Lost in Space, and the two-player gameplay has the feel of Cold War one-upmanship. The guy in the background on the box surveying the board looks like a professor in an episode of The Twilight Zone. The guys at Sterling Cooper would love this game. And I turned around the back of the box to read not only the color text, but also to notice the adult beverages and uh, and refreshments, such as the bowl of chips by the lit fireplace, <laughs> <laughs> giving it that sort of, you know, if you had if you had a house that had a den or library in it, this is the kind of place you would play this sort of sophisticated game. Before there were man caves, they had places like that. So we played the four player version of this game, which is two teams of two which seems to have a very different dynamic than the two-player game does. Well, I really enjoyed it. You're not allowed to talk to your partner while you play, which was extremely challenging. Possibly the most challenging part of a four-player game. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I'll start over here now. Oh, she's trying to mislead you. She's actually I can go him, anywhere. She, you're actually giving Joe Morse code. You're like... <laughs> 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 It's like bridge, right? You can only communicate through the bid. So in this game, you, you you can't do anything. You just have to place your peg and hope your partner understands where you're going on the board. It's an excellent convention for the game. It keeps all four players involved in the game, even when it's not your turn. And I love games that achieve that. I think it's just wonderful when that happens. They had a uh, an ability for the four-player game, which was problematic in its name probably now, but <laughs> oh. um, when you want to skip the next player's turn, which would be the opposite team's turn, you just yell out, privilege. <laughs> you can do that once per game. The team gets one privilege, and who whoever on the team calls it first, the other guy on the team gets the privilege, and that's it. You're at the mercy of your partner and when they may or may not call it, so you got to be really careful. Right, and you got to hope your partner understands what you were trying to get at by calling it at that point, or it totally wastes it. What privilege does is it skips your opponent's next turn, effectively. That's all it does. It makes your team make two moves in a row, not you make two moves in a row, <laughs> which is yeah. really makes it tricky because you're hoping, oh God, I hope Evan knows why I called privilege right now. When Joe and I used it, it was key. It was, I, it was right in the center of the board where it was build or die. Uh, our, li our line was either going to die there or you can allow us to, or we were going to build across and get past the other the other team's line. And it worked. It worked beautifully. As a matter of fact, you called it the turn after I called it. And that's what made it do or die right there. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was a really fun mechanic. It was really exciting playing with somebody who you couldn't communicate with. Although you guys had a little bit of a problem with the way I was planning my my pegs since I would uh, since yeah, I would point yeah. at different holes and mumble to myself <laughs> like if I go here if I go here I could do this and then I'd be counting <laughs> off moves and they're like seriously well, we can just go around there or we can go one over here now that definitely sets us up bad and that's a little bit better it's a little bit longer what could Celeste possibly What is the uh, the moves you can do with a peg? Oh, you can. They move like a knight. So there's these little bridge pieces that connect the pegs together, um, and that's how you form the blockades. But they connect in a manner of two spaces up and one over, or two spaces over and one up or down, like a knight does in chess. 
So you place pegs on the board, but then you place these little plastic barriers on top of the pegs. That's a separate move? No. Anytime you can do it, you you have the option of doing it. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't count as a move, so you would always do it if you remember to do it. They tell you if you forget to do it, then that's on you and people can build through. But as soon as you put that barrier up between the two pegs... Nobody can build across it. But it is really neat that essentially every path is at an angle. So yeah, during your turn, you'll place a peg. And then if you can make a barrier or two barriers, you'll just place all of them for free. So at the beginning of the game, I had this great strategic idea where I would put a peg and then put a peg with three spaces in between the next peg in a straight line so that people would have a hard time blocking me. And I was hoping Evan picked up on it. I was like, please see what I'm doing. (laughs) But apparently uh, he did not. (laughs) I got distracted because Celeste started pegging stuff over at my side of the board, Mike. Yeah, that's right. Distraction tactics. It did. It worked. I'm like, (laughs) I can't can't let Celeste get away with this. She, She might actually bridge something. I guess it did work well because that eventually... Joe was having none of my distracting tactics. He completely ignored what I was doing on Evan's side of the board. You could just tell he's like, yeah, that's garbage, whatever's happening over there. (laughs) And he just kept building right across. Twixt and learn. Twixt and learn. (laughs) (laughs) All right, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Twixt. Ed? Well, I didn't get a chance to play this game, but I'll reserve judgment until I can connect with this later. Joe? I'll dig this up. It's not my extra special favorite, but the board and the rules are simple enough. You can play with almost anyone and still have a good time and decent challenge. Evan? I found it surprisingly elegant. Kind of like chess, it challenges you to think several moves ahead for certain advantages. And the four-player version worked really, really well. Nice find. Dig it up. Mike? It was interesting. It had a really cool folding pegboard and some really cool psychology in the four-player mode. So I say dig it up. Yeah, a really nice looking game. Uh, Great piece of history. And it is a fun partner game. I will definitely dig it up. Evan, where can you find it? I found mine at Etsy, as I do a lot of my used games. Got it for $12. I'm sure you can find it there and at other used game locations online. If you have thoughts about Twixt or any of the 3M or Avalon Hill bookshelf series games, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including exclusive episodes, for just $3 a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, leave us a rating or a review on any of your favorite podcasters. It really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server, Which Game First, and our Patreon support get access to exclusive channels follow us on your favorite social media we are at which game first on twitter facebook and instagram happy gaming explorers arrivederci if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies they would become my enemies and then they would fear you 